0: Well good morning everybody. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go to Exodus chapter 34 as we continue in our series that we've entitled God Has a Name, a series where we are looking at the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible where God tells us what he is like by declaring to us his name. And if you were with us the first week, we shared that famous quote from A.W. Tozer where he said that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because plain and simple, um, what you think about God will shape you into the man or the woman that you become. And so in light of that, our hope in this series is that you will go from getting your theology um, of God from pulp culture or from wishful thinking or tradition to instead uh, getting your view of God from God. And so we're just looking right here to Exodus 34 where God tells us, hey, this is exactly what I am like. And I just want to say again, uh, as Luke said, if you are a guest today, we are so glad that you are here. Um, today we are celebrating our seventh, uh, birthday as a church. And so, that is super exciting. Basically, what you see, as we say often, is a bunch of imperfect people who are standing in need of one perfect person together. That perfect person is Jesus Christ. And so, if you are imperfect, uh, you qualify to be a part of this family. And if you want more information about that, uh, I would encourage you, as Luke said, fill out that connect card, turn it in, or go meet with our Next Steps team. Um, so that being said, Exodus 34 is where we will be. We're going to start in verse six. Uh, We'll read verse six, verse seven, and I'm using the NIV translation. And as always, if you want, if you have a Bible app on your phone, you can get our sermon notes off of that. Exodus 34, verse six, it says, and God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I thank you for each person who is here right now, who probably wrestled with kids or just their own issues just in order to get up and to be here today. I know that there are people in this room who are struggling with anxiety, with depression, um, with financial issues, family issues, um, questions they're wrestling with about you and their existence. And I just pray that you, Holy Spirit, will do what only you can do, that you will minister specifically to the hearts of every single person in this room in a unique and special way. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. So one of the things that I learned growing up as a pastor's kid and now as a pastor myself is whether people mean to or not they often look at pastors as people who have it all together and so they look at people like me and they basically have this expectation that I roll out of bed in the morning every morning with a big smile on my face and I reach over and I grab my harp where I pull and I begin to strum and sing love songs to Jesus and then after that's done of course I walk into our kitchen which always smells like cinnamon and there I find my kids at the table with a big smile on their face and their Bibles open saying, please teach us the way of Jesus, Daddy. And um, as much as I wish that was my reality, the truth is when I became a pastor, I did not get a card that exempted me from the problems and the messes and the doubts and the fears and the questions that each of you are wrestling with. And the reason I share that is because as I look back over my life over the last 15 years of following Jesus, one of the biggest struggles, the biggest problems that I had with God, especially early on in my discipleship to Jesus, was around this topic we're going to look at this morning, which is the topic of God's wrath, right? Everybody's favorite thing to talk about in church. And I think part of the reason I struggled with this is because I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and whenever I heard about God's wrath being explained to me, it seemed as if God was this vengeful deity who was just gonna show up at somebody's bedside when they died and say, aha, you didn't believe in Jesus. And you're gonna say, Jesus who? And he's gonna be like, it's too late for you now, right? And then he's gonna throw you into hell and while you tumble into hell, you're gonna be like, Jesus who, Jesus who? And he's just gonna be like, ha ha ha, like laughing at your demise. That was my view of God's wrath. And therefore, as you can imagine, right when it came to having an intimate and personal relationship with this kind of creator God, it was a huge obstacle for me. And it's not just a problem that I have dealt with, but I think of others. For example, the famous skeptic, uh, Bertrand Russell, who wrote uh, a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. He said, uh, the big primary reason that I do not believe in Jesus is because, and quote, Jesus so clearly believed in the wrath of God. So I think we should at least give Russell credit that he acknowledged something that many other so-called Christians don't acknowledge. And that's the fact that Jesus did teach on and believe in the wrath of God. But he goes on to say, Jesus' belief in God's wrath is, and I quote, the one profound defect in his character. He's like, Jesus, great guy, really good across the board, but there's one problem with him. He believed in the wrath of God, and therefore that's why I don't follow Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who many of you know uh, for the Chronicles of Narnia, he was also considered one of the greatest thinkers in church history. When talking about God's wrath, said this, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. So the wrath of God presents a lot of problems to a lot of people inside the church, outside the church. The wrath of God is a teaching many people wish they could erase from the scriptures or just pretend like it is not there. And if that is where you are this morning, this is what I want you to hear. Um, I want you to leave the day with an understanding that the wrath of God is not only something that you need to understand, but it is also something that each of us crave and long for. Uh, in other words, the wrath of God, despite what Russell says, is not a defect in God's character, but it's actually a beautiful part of God's character that you and I want to be true about Him. And I know that's probably kind of a confusing and provocative statement, but, but here's what I mean by that. Look back with me in Exodus chapter 34, Exodus 34. And just to set the context for you, in case you weren't here the first week, is Moses, the great leader of God's people, the Israelites. Uh, he's not content with just a little bit of God. And so he says to God, I want more of you. I want to experience you as you really are. And so God, show me your glory. Show me what you are really like. To which God responds in Exodus 33, 19 by saying this, I will make all of my goodness, and that's a key word there, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will, proclaim my name in your presence. So Moses says to God, show me what you're like. God says, okay, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do it by proclaiming my name. I and mean, if you're with us in the first week, you might've heard to say that in America, a name is nothing really more than a, a label or a tagline, but in the ancient near East, a name was a person's entire identity. It was who they are. So whenever Moses says, show me what you're like, God says, okay, I'll do that by telling you my name. And if you look back with me in Exodus 34, what is the name that God proclaims of himself? It says this, verse six, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Now, in the first week, and go back and listen on the podcast, we talked about this name, the Lord. Last week, we talked about God as compassionate and gracious, but this week, We're going to talk specifically about what it means for God to be slow to anger. Or in the Hebrew, which is the original language in the Old Testament, erech apiam, which literally means, are you ready for this? Long of nostrils. True story. Not making this up. And it actually, if you think about it, um, this idea of God's nostrils being really long actually does a pretty good job of capturing what uh, the meaning is behind this ancient word picture. Because what happens when you lose your temper, or not you, because you don't lose your temper, but those people. What happens whenever they lose their temper? Your nostrils flare out, your face turns red, and then depending on who you are, you either blow up or you clam up, right? So some of you, like if you're on the road and you are a person who is as quick to anger and someone cuts you off, what do you do if you're the kind of person who blows up, right? You slam on your horn, or you hit the steering wheel, or you give a very nice hand gesture to the person, or you like speed up and you get around them and you cut them off, right? Like let them know like, this is what it feels like whenever you get cut off. That's what some of you do whenever you blow up. But for others, when it comes to you, you're you're quick to anger, but you don't blow up, you clam up. And so you're the kind of person who's like, oh, you cut me off. Well, I'll just uh, file that away in my never forget file. And then uh, maybe you like drive up and you're like, I just wonder what that kind of person looks like. And so you drive up and and you're not going to do anything, but you're just kind of looking in the corner of your eye and you say, okay, I'm just making an image of that. I'm just going to throw that with all the rest of the stuff in my crock pot of offenses. And I'm just going to kind of let my anger, you know, the lid of my anger just rumble until it spills over in really unhealthy ways in the life of others. And listen, both of these are examples of a person who is quick to anger. But then there's another type of person. And this is the type of person who is slow to anger, the kind of person who when wrong, they stop, they take a deep breath in and through their nose, and in that moment, they are <sighs> slow to anger. And listen, according to God's self-disclosure statement, Exodus 34, he says, this is what I am like. Meaning, and you have to get this today, you can make God mad, But you have to work really hard at it. Because again, he is slow to anger. Now, that being said, there are two sides to this reality. Because on the one hand, listen, God is slow to anger. Meaning God is not quick-tempered. He's not volatile. He's not ready to fly off the handle at at any notice. I think of uh, the movie um, Lincoln starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Has anybody seen the movie Lincoln in here? A few of you, man, you should watch it. It's like one of my top favorite 15 movies of all time. And there's a scene in there where Abraham Lincoln, played by Lewis, is with his cabinet. And these guys are just against him on the Second Amendment. I mean, they are coming at him. They're like throwing shade at him. They're like, you know, always critiquing him. They're picking him apart. And I mean, they're fighting and they're bickering. And finally, after months and months and months and months and months of this, Lincoln slams his hand on the table and says, I can't take this anymore. And the whole room just gets quiet because this is totally out of his character. I mean, he's not the kind of guy who raises his voice. But in this moment, he's had enough and he's angry. And in his anger, out of that anger, he gives this passionate and powerful speech that eventually motivates his cabinet, true story, to go out of the room and change the world by ending slavery. And in this beautiful moment, I think it captures this picture of what God is like. A God who, again, according to Exodus 34, rather than being hot-tempered, rather than pouncing on you at a moment's notice, rather than jumping down your throat anytime time you screw up, he is instead self-controlled. He is slow to anger. But on the other hand, God is slow to anger. Meaning, as much as we don't like to think about this, God does get mad. In fact, in the Bible, we see the wrath of God mentioned over 600 times. I think of Psalm 7 verse 11 that says, God is angry with the wicked every day. How often is God angry at the wicked? Every day. Why? Because anger is always the appropriate response to injustice. Anger is always the appropriate response when a child is abused or molested. Anger is always the appropriate response whenever a man cheats on his wife, when a woman cuts down another woman behind her back, whenever someone chooses greed over generosity. God is and should be angry about these type of things because they rob us from experiencing life as it was meant to be. I think it's Psalm 11:5. It says, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Like, wait a minute, God hates? I thought God is love, according to 1 John chapter 4. And that is true. God is love, and therefore, though, listen, because he is love, he hates those who practice wickedness and violence and anything else that is the opposite of love. So again, God does get angry. But here's what you need to hear today. God's anger is different than my anger. Um, I think about just a couple weeks ago. I come home from work. I usually get home around 5.15 and we're having dinner around the table. And um, again, though, I wish dinner was just this very peaceful, calm, you know, kind of interaction where my children are looking at me very well behaved and like, how was your day, father? And it's like, it was excellent. How was your day, child? You know, Um, that's just not the way it is. My kids are usually fighting each other, and I'm having, to, I'm having to tell them like 25 times, like "keep your hands to yourself, keep your hands to yourself." Or they're complaining about the food their mom made. Uh, or if they are eating it, they're making a massive mess. And so after dinner, every single day, we have to then clean up together. After clean up, it's time for homework. After homework, it's time for bath time. And for whatever reason, bath time becomes like, becomes like flood time. Like the water never stays in the bathtub; it's on the floor, it's on the walls, it's on the ceiling somehow. It's everywhere. After that gets dried up, it's in time to brush their teeth. And for some reason we go through like seven gallons of toothpaste a month because they can't ever get it on the toothbrush. It's all over the counter. After we clean that up, we try to get them dressed. It's like preparing them to go to space. I mean, it's just this incredibly difficult thing. And then after all that, if we have anything left in the tank, we'll try to read through the Jesus story Bible. Sometimes we make it, sometimes we don't. We'll definitely pray over them before they go to bed. But a couple of weeks ago, all that happens, about 8.15, I go and I just collapse into my bed. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, this is going to be so nice, just some time to hang out with my wife. And all of a sudden from across the house, I hear, dad, mom, right? To which I would, I would like to be able to tell you that I walked across very calmly and was just like, yes, my children, I'm here at your service. What do you need? Right? But I didn't, I, started, I just looked at Megan, I was like, oh my gosh, it's it! And so I'm like storming across the house, open the door, and I'm like, this is the last time I will tell you, if I hear another peep out of you, no toys, no TV, no nothing for the next month. Good night! And I shut the door and like walked back to my room. That's a picture of being impatient and unjust, right? And fortunately, that is not the way God rolls, When it comes to God's anger, he is patient and he is just, meaning the punishment always fits the crime. Another way that my anger is different from God's anger is, listen to this, my anger is almost always, probably 99% of the time, my anger is from a wounded ego. So somebody hurt me or made me feel stupid or embarrassed me or took advantage of me or they didn't want what I wanted. And in my pride, though I probably didn't say this out loud, I thought to myself, how dare you? Like, who do you really think you are? Right? Why? Because my anger can often be very inherently selfish and even narcissistic. Whereas God's anger, on the other hand, is like the love a parent has for his child. Whenever the child runs out into a street, just a couple weeks ago, we had to spank our youngest son, two and a half year old Moses, because he snuck out the door and was out playing in the street. We were angry about that situation. Why? Because we love our kids. And these pictures are, are an example of God's anger, which, listen, is always a healthy and emotionally mature response to a situation. And it's very important that we get this today because I think we have come to a point in human history where there is this national move to cast God, not as a God who is slow to anger, but a God who's just not angry at all. It's like this move in our culture to where for even a pastor to talk about God's anger, it's like, well, pastor, you're just like this backwoods fundamentalist that needs to get with the times. It's time to move on now. And the problem with this move is that it not only screws up our view of God, but it screws up our view of love to where now, according to culture, love is the same thing as tolerance to where love is this idea of how you just live and let live. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. And who am I to judge? And if I do, right, if I disagree with you clearly, right, I hate you because the disagree to hate are the same thing. That's what our culture is telling us. And if that's where you are, please hear me today love and tolerance are not the same thing. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. It's indifference. It's to not care about someone or something. And therefore, because this is true, because God is love, God cannot not get angry. Does that make sense? Because God cares so much about you and me, he does, in fact, get angry about the stuff that harms us. And this is why in Exodus 34, his being slow to anger, if you look back at the text, is positioned right in between him being compassionate and gracious and him abounding in love and faithfulness. Because according to the Bible, because God is compassionate and gracious, because God is abounding in steadfast love, he also has to be slow to anger. Now, that being said, before we end, I want to make sure you are very clear on this. According to the scripture, it is very important to know that there are actually two tenses to God's wrath, two tenses to his anger. There is an active tense and there is a passive tense. And here's what I mean by that. First off, there is an active tense to God's wrath, which means, as you see on the screen, there are times when God in wrath acts directly in order to put a stop to evil. I think about Acts chapter 5. There's Ananias and Sapphira. They sell some property. They lie about how much money they made so they can lie about how much money they actually give to the church. And does anybody remember what did God do to them as a result? He killed them. He killed them. I mean, they still gave money to the church, but they lied about how much they could have gave. They lied to the pastor. They lied to the Holy Spirit, says in Acts chapter 5. And so God kills them. It's a really interesting story. Ananias comes in, right? husband comes in, lies. God kills him. They carry out his body. Apparently his wife doesn't see the body being carried out. As she walks in, she also lies. God kills her. That is a very clear picture of the active wrath of God when God acts in judgment. And a lot of times when we think of God's wrath, that's what we think of. But what you need to understand is when you read the scripture, God's active wrath is actually an exception to the rule. Because what we see way more than God's active wrath is God's passive wrath. And here's an example of this. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 1. I want, you, I want everyone to lay eyes on this. Romans chapter 1 in your Bible. I want you to see this. I honestly think that this is the scariest passage in the Bible. Romans chapter 1 is going to give us a very good picture of God's passive wrath. Starting in verse 18, Romans 1 verse 18, Paul says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So Paul says, God does have wrath and it is going to be revealed. Now, how is it being revealed? If you look down at verse 24, because there are people who refuse to repent, who refuse to turn from their sins, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Hang on to that phrase. God gave them over and the sinful desires of their hearts. In then verse 26, again, because they refused to repent, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. And then one more place, verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And look at the result of this, verse 29. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death... They do, uh, they do not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, clearly there's a lot in there, but here's what I want you to see. Notice this, according to Romans one, you see it with your own eyes. God does not reveal in Romans one, his wickedness against or his wrath against wickedness in a active sense. But rather, what we see here in Romans 1 is not God's active wrath. We see his passive wrath. On three different occasions, you see in verse 24, 26, and 28, because they refused to repent, it says God gave them over. God gave them over. He gave them over to their sins, meaning whenever they refused to repent, God did not give them cancer. He didn't crash them into a telephone pole. He didn't say, okay, enough of that. Here's hell, fire, and brimstone. But rather, because they knew right from wrong, but continued to do what God said to stop doing, God, in his wrath, said, all right, I'm just not going to do anything. I- I- I'm just going to remove my protection from your life, okay? I've tried to get you to do it my way, but you don't want to, so I'm just going to let you have it your way. I'm going to let you go after what it is that you think you have to have in order to be happy. I'm going to let your heart, as a result, become dark. I'm going to let you come to a place where you no longer want what I want, where you no longer even hear my voice, and you therefore chase after sin, unchecked and unabated, until it destroys you. Now, can we all agree that's a pretty terrifying text? And that is why, I I mean, it's terrifying because God literally says here, there comes a place where, If you refuse to repent of your sin, God says, okay, I'm going to let your marriage be wrecked by idolatry. Okay, you refuse to repent, I'm going to let your mind become warped by pornography. I'm going to let your body be ravaged by your addiction. I'm going to let your relationships become obliterated by your pride. Or even worse, I will let your soul be damned to hell. Not because I want you to go there, but because you chose that over me. This is a picture of God's passive wrath. And listen to me very carefully. That is why it is God's mercy for some of you to get busted in your sin. It is not God's wrath for you to get busted. That is God's mercy. God's wrath is you continuing to follow after this thing, believing I'm going to find delight in something that actually is going to bring about destruction. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1. So, again, does God get angry? Yes. Yes. He has an active wrath and a passive wrath, and guys, please understand this is not just an Old Testament idea. Sometimes people read the Old Testament and they read the Bible and they say, "Oh yeah, God of the old testament right he 's just like this angry old man who got up on the wrong side of bed and just wanting to zap you every time you screw up it 's like will Ferrell's character in alive who's always like like get off the shed right every time a kid gets on his grass or whatever and so like, that's our view of God. But then we look at the New Testament, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus, though, he's a kid who went off to college, and he got educated, and therefore he came back with a whole new teaching on love. When the reality is, what we see is the God of the God of the Father in the Old Testament is the same as God the Son in the New Testament. They're the same. For example, in John chapter 3, we've all memorized John three sixteen. if you've been in the church for more than five minutes, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most of us know that. Anybody have John 3, 18 memorized? Two verses later, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe stands condemned, or your translation might say, punished already. Already. I think of Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus is not happy by the temple corruption. Um, Basically what's happening is, back in the first century, if you wanted to be in right standing before God, you'd bring a sacrifice, a dove, a dove, or a ram or whatever else. And, and it couldn't have defect. It couldn't have any blemish in it. So what the religious leaders are doing, like a priest like me, would sit there and, and in order to get rich, I would say, Oh, I'm sorry. I found a blemish on your dove or on your ram. But hey, good news. I've got a perfect one for you right here. It's already been approved by the priest and it's only three times as much as actually what it should cost. And so like I would charge you that. You had no other choice unless you want to go to hell. And so you'd have to pay me the price, right? And I'd try to get rich off of you. That's what was happening. So as you can imagine, King Jesus isn't very happy about this. And so in chapter 21, verse 12 of Matthew, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers of the benches of those uh, selling doves. And he said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Like, Does this sound like hippie Jesus to you? Like, This is not the Jesus that we heard about in Sunday school. Right? Like, I don't know about you, but when we had the little flannel graph characters, like, there wasn't like, Jesus with fire in his eyes. Like, that wasn't like one of the characters. There's not like people running like, you know, like, run for your life. Jesus has a whip. Get out of here. Like, like that's not a story that you're being told whenever you're a little kid. And yet, it's so important that it shows up, not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but also in Mark and Luke and John. So all four Gospels. They not only recount the crucifixion and the resurrection, they say, also, this is such an important story. It needs to be accounted for in every single gospel. We want you to know that there comes a time where for Jesus, he says, enough is enough. He picks up a whip off the ground and he begins to turn tables over as God's judgment is poured out on the religious leaders of the day. And I know that's like not necessarily like a picture we like to imagine of Jesus, but this is, according to the Bible, the real Jesus. A Jesus who is not apathetic, who is not indifferent, but a Jesus who aims to put the world to right, A Jesus who one day will do away with injustice and corruption and oppression and everything else that keeps you from experiencing the life you were created to experience. A Jesus who will do away with sin once and for all so that you and I can finally become in him who we were created to be. And listen to me, this is why I said at the beginning of the teaching that as disciples we do crave the wrath of God. We crave God's anger because according to the Bible, it is God's love and God's anger that gives us a hope of new heavens and new earth. The good news of the gospel is not that you're going to be chilling with Hitler in the next world. Like, oh, wow, I didn't expect to see you here. This is awkward, right? Like, that's not the hope of the gospel. But the hope of the gospel is because God's love and because he has anger, we can look forward in hope to a day where all brokenness and death and sickness and suffering, and all of that will be done away with. One day the Bible is clear. All sad things are going to become untrue. Isn't that great news? Anybody in here grieving right now? I know I am. One day we won't even know what that is. It's going to be over. And it's because of God's love and anger. One day we will just enjoy the overflow of God's perfections. No death, no decay. No terrible surprises. And all that's going to be possible because God not only is compassionate and gracious, not only because he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but because he's also slow to anger. Now, in light of that, before we end this morning, I want to ask you a question. Which end of the spectrum are you on today? For some of you, what you need to hear this morning is that God is slow to anger. Because in your mind's eye, God is ready to pounce on you as soon as you make a mistake. God is angry at you. He's frustrated at you. And because of that, you're angry and frustrated with people all the time. Right? To to you, God is always looking down on you, just waiting for you to mess up so he can stomp on you. And what you desperately need to hear today is, listen, God is slow to anger. For others in here, though, what you need to hear this morning is that God is slow to anger. I think of that line in Hebrews that says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For some of you in here, you're not only living in sin, but you've become flippant about it. If you can be honest, there's no urgency. There's no brokenness. There's no repentance. There's no desire for God. Just a heart that keeps getting harder and harder and darker and darker. And what I would just say to you this morning, if there's any part of you right now when I say that, that you kind of have a little bit of fear, that you're like, man, like I hope that's not me. I don't want that to be me. Then hey, listen, that's a good sign the Holy Spirit's working in your life. That's a good thing. The people I'm scared for are the people who can hear that and be like, eh, ah, don't bother me. Don't make me uncomfortable. Sure, I'm imperfect, but nah. Yeah. Not concerned about that at all. Listen, if that's where you are with love in my heart, I just want you to know you're in a dangerous, dangerous place. Because it is a sign that quite possibly God is finally beginning to give you over to that thing that you have refused to give to Him because you've believed the lie that you need it more than you need Him. For some of you in the room today, God has been trying to get your attention in love. He has been trying to get your attention like a parent screaming at their kid who's standing in the middle of the road. Wake up. Pay attention. Repent. Turn. Trust in me so that you can live. I think of that verse in Second Peter that says, that though God is slow to anger, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Did you know the last person who wants you to experience the wrath of God is God? Did you know that? Like God does not want you to go to hell. Like God does not want anybody in here to perish. He's not laughing at you, hoping to trick you. Like God wants you to experience in him the life that you have been created to experience. And therefore today, my hope is that you will grab on to that life by grabbing on to Jesus Christ. For the first time ever, maybe for some of you in your life, you will look to Jesus and realize that He went to the cross and He absorbed the wrath of God on your, or in your place. So that you don't have to. So rather than receiving the wrath of God, you can be clothed in His righteousness, which means when you trust in Jesus, His life becomes your life. God treats you the way only Jesus deserves to be treated for all eternity because when Jesus went to the cross, He was treated the way you and I deserve to be treated for our sinfulness. That's the gospel. And if you have never trusted in Jesus, if you have never experienced salvation, I pray the day that you will receive this free gift. For the rest of you in here, if you're like, man, I've already done that, I have trusted in Jesus. Then here's what I would just say to the rest of us. If what we talked about today is true, how can we not go and tell the people about this? How unloving is it of Jared Pickney to know that you could be dying and going to hell and saying, "And eh, it's just too awkward to, tell, to share the gospel with you. I mean, think about it, guys. Like, if you knew that you were dying and going to hell, but you didn't know how to be saved, like, what would you want me to do for you? You'd want me to tell you, how do you experience salvation? We have a world that is lost and dying. Many of them have no idea how good Jesus is, and it is our call to go and to share him with them. That is why you might remember at the beginning of the year, we made a challenge to the church to have gospel conversations with a thousand people who are far from God. I feel like as a church, we've done a really good job of gospel demonstration of showing people a picture of good news with their hands. We're not always great of actually telling people the gospel. And so we issued a challenge, and I don't even know if we have the number on the screen. We might or might not. But last I checked, um, we have, as a church, shared the gospel with 825 different people, who are far from God, who are not currently following Christ. And that's worth celebrating, by the way. Not because of anything we've done, but because you as a church, you're being faithful and going and planting gospel seeds in hopes that the Holy Spirit will take those and that some people will believe the truth and pass from death to life. And so my hope for you and for me as a church is that we will believe this and that we will tell people with passion, you don't have to miss out on this. God has made a way for you no matter who you are or where you come from or what you've done God has made a way for you through Jesus And I think the way that we're going to become passionate about doing this is we have to remember that that we need this gospel as much as anybody else This is not just something that those people need like this is something that we need One way to know that you're maturing in christ is you realize more this year than you did last year that you need jesus more than ever before I, I need Jesus so much. I was reminded of it right before I came up here. Like, goodness, I need you so much. I am nothing without you. And one of the ways that we remember this every single week is by coming and partaking of communion. Where we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice. And, and the way that what, what communion reminds us of is the fact that because Jesus stood in our place, that you now can go from being an enemy of God to being his beloved child. We all long to be loved. We all long to be accepted. And Jesus has made a way for us to receive both of those things. And so what I would encourage you to do today, if you have trusted in Jesus, we'll have these two stations in the front. You have two stations in the back. would encourage you to grab that, to tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, to be reminded of what Christ has done. I'm going to encourage you, if you have trusted in Christ, even if you're not a member of our church, partake of communion. We have two stations in the front, two in the back. There's a gluten-free option for you. And my back left, your back right. And uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian today, please hear me. We're about done. Um, we don't have very many closed doors to you here. So glad that you're here. And in many ways, if you're not a Christian, I'm almost more glad you're here than even those that are Um, because you get a chance to hear the gospel and we get a chance to love on you, meet you where you are. And so what we would ask you though is rather than receiving communion today, um, we would ask you to receive Jesus. And if you want more information about how to do that, you can come and talk with Adam or you can talk with me and we'd love to help you with next steps. That being said, I'm about the band to come forward and let's uh, stand together. And I want us to pray together. And I would just ask you real fast before we leave to just to take a moment and let's just pause and let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what it is that we need to hear from the teaching today. For some of you, it's that God is slow to anger. That He is not mad at you. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You're not being punished. Jesus took your punishment. For others, you need to be reminded that God is slow to anger. There are sins that you've been running to whatever that may be, things you've been clinging to that God has called you to let go of. And his invitation today is to trust him and know that in him is the life you're longing for. Father, I thank you so much for everyone who is here. I now pray that in this time of communion and singing our final song together, that you will take the words that were spoken and that you will drive them into our hearts and that you will help us come to an even greater realization of how good you really are. Father, we need faith. We need you to open our eyes and our hearts to trust that you are better than anything else the world has to offer. We thank you so much that you are incredibly slow to anger, that rather than punishing us or crushing us, every single person in this room still has breath in their lungs. You have given us new mercies again today, another chance to respond to you. And I pray that each person will do that accordingly. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.